it's probably safe to say that all of us spend a large part of our lives doing the kinds of things and engaging in the kind of pursuits that we hope will make us happy. And the engine that drives that emotion or state of mind called happiness is what we call hope. Imagine with me this following hypothetical but certainly realistic scenario. You have worked hard all your life and you've attempted to put away a little bit of money for retirement, but it hasn't been a lot. And then all of a sudden you, you get good news. You, you hear that you have come into a very sizable inheritance. Imagine your state of mind as you are driving to the lawyer's office to pick up your inheritance check and you are thinking about the drive from there to the bank where you are going to deposit that check and then from there on your way to the um, travel agent to pick up the tickets for that cruise you dreamed about all your life but were never able to take. Humming your favorite tune as you go along. You are full of hope and you are happy. Now imagine your cell phone rings You pick it up and there's no sound on the other side, no voice, but you hear a sob and it's your spouse and he or she says to you, I just came back from the doctor's office. I've been told I have three weeks to live. What happens to your hope? It crushes to the ground and in one moment hope changes to hopelessness and happiness is gone. Hope is the engine that elevates that state of mind called happiness and hopelessness is what brings it crashing to the ground. And further observations and reflections on life are uh, enough to show to us that this thing called hope and hopelessness is, is an undulating cycle that most of us experience. It goes up and down and so happiness and loss of happiness come to us in cycles. We also discover on further reflection on life that even the things that fill us with hope and when hope is realized and make us happy don't seem to have the ability to deliver that happiness for any length of time. A recent survey among lottery winners showed that six months after winning their sizable lotteries they said their lives were no more happy than they were six months before they won the lottery. One of my friends put it this way, he said, everything in life seems to be booby-trapped. And one man came up with his bumper sticker, life sucks and then you die. (laughs) And author Mark Buchanan says in response to this, we can sometimes get cynical. And he describes it very eloquently when he says, we can become so cynical that we poison ourselves, so self-indulgent that we devour ourselves, so despairing that we collapse into ourselves. In fact, self-pity and self-indulgence, boredom and despair, envy and greed, these are only yearnings gone sour. They are just a greasy residue that remains after yearning has gone unfulfilled too many times. We find trinkets to fiddle with, trivia to distract us. Everything becomes a frantic attempt to get the passion back or a plodding resignation to its death. Now you might say, well, I couldn't have said it that eloquently, but I kind of knew that. If you're honest about your life's experience, he said, that's true, that rings true. And Charlene talked about that yearning. What may not, you may not be so aware of is who's the architect behind this journey? Who has engineered life to be these cycles of hope and hopelessness and leave us with this kind of greasy residue? It's God himself. Buchanan continues in his book, Things Unseen. He made us to yearn, to always be hungry for something we can't get, to always be missing something we can't find, to always be disappointed with what we receive. To always have an insatiable emptiness that no thing can fill and an untamable restlessness that no discovery can still. 
Yearning itself is healthy, a kind of compass inside us pointing to true north. Which of course sets up the question, what then is true north? And I want to take you to one passage in scripture that is going to be the basis of my, this first message on heaven. The Apostle Peter, one of, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, writing to Christians scattered all over first century, uh, the first century Roman Empire, wrote these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. So instead of an undulating hope and hopelessness cycle, Peter says, we have access to a new, a living hope. And this living hope is tied to an inheritance. Not the kind of earthly inheritances that can fade away or that are robbed of their power to satisfy for any length of time, but an inheritance that is imperishable and which is waiting for us in heaven. This is what our hearts are yearning for, this living hope that comes from a grasp of an imperishable inheritance in heaven. And the goal of these three messages, today and the next two Sundays, is to delineate for you as well as I can the contours of this imperishable inheritance, that by grasping it, we may increasingly experience that living hope that remains unchanged, even as life's hopes and hopelessness continue to go through us. Now, at the point of departure, I want to give you some curious facts that I learned in this process of researching this series of sermons. I learned that while the majority of North Americans believe in heaven and believe they are going there, when you scratch below the surface of these beliefs, most of them don't want to go there. In his book, uh, Rand, on Heaven, Randy Alcorn talks about a pastor friend of his who said, I would rather that my soul were annihilated after I did. I dread the prospect of going to heaven. And another Christian told him at a, at a conference, he said, I am absolutely terrified of heaven and eternal life. Now that's pretty curious, isn't it? I mean, if you have an imperishable inheritance, why would we be dreading it? Why would we be terrified of it? And why would we rather prefer annihilation? And that coming from a pastor. Another curious dimension related to this is the fact that many of the leading Christian theologians who have written on this, on, uh, on Christian theology and life, have written very little about heaven. Just a couple, and I won't bore you with a whole lot of readers. Reinhold Neighbor was a well-known Christian theologian of the 20th century, and in his book, Nature and Destiny of Man, a pretty large volume, said nothing about heaven. And he's talking about our destinies. And Louis Burkhoff, who's written one of the most classic commentaries on systematic theology, 737 pages, relegates heaven to one paragraph on page 737. Why? Why this lack of interest in going there? If it's all that good. There's probably many reasons, but there were three that I think kind of rose to the surface as I began thinking about them and, and as I read it. The first one, the first one is a belief that heaven will be boring. Isaac Asimov, who many of you know as a science fiction writer, said this, I don't believe in an afterlife, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven even more. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be worse. Now, even though he's an unbeliever, the fact that he could think like that is interesting. The amazing thing is, most Christians think that way. John Eldridge, in his book, Journey of Desire, says this. He says, nearly every Christian I've spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. 
we have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky. One great hymn after another forever and ever. Amen. And our heart sinks forever and ever. That's it. That's good news. We lose heart and return once more to the present to find what life we can. But perhaps the man who said it most bluntly was a man named David Murrow. Don't take offense at this, but it's very, very relevant. And the book he wrote was Why Men Hate, should be men, sorry, Why Men Hate Going to Church. He said, an eternity singing in the choir. Contrast that with religion A is heaven where faithful men spend eternity making celestial babies. Or consider religion B is heaven where martyrs enjoy the everlasting ministrations of 72 virgins. Guys, which sounds better to you, eternal singing or eternal sex? Is it any wonder why religions A and B are so popular with males? So for whatever reason, for a conglomerate of all these reasons, we've come to the conclusion that heaven will be boring. And as a matter of fact, even though we don't say it, when I was discussing this sermon earlier, or this, these messages with somebody else earlier on in this church, she said to me right away, I've struggled with that. I've thought heaven would be boring. The, other, the second reason is very childish images of what heaven is like. Maria Shriver, who's probably felt more known these days as the wife of California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, has apparently written a children's book, which is a bestseller, called What's Heaven's Like? It's one of those large picture books full of blue skies and fluffy clouds, you know, that kind of a book. And she defines heaven like this. It's a beautiful place where we sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest anywhere in the universe. And again, whether we like it or not, these are the kind of images of heaven that have been smuggled into us. And no wonder it, it, it seems boring and it seems unbelievably childish. And a third reason is, it's also, I didn't realize how widespread this was, that heaven is made up of disembodied souls. 67% of those who believe in the resurrection believe that we will not have bodies in heaven. You see, it's, it's conjured up by the very word soul which conveys to us the idea that these bodies are just temporary receptacles for the real me, which is the soul, which is going to go and be with God while this little thing is discarded. And it's very hard to get excited about something like that. We were never made for bodiless, soulish existences. There are probably other reasons, but these are probably three of the main, prominent, significant ones why a lot of us believe in heaven but really don't want to go there when push comes to shove. What I would like to do in these three messages is, by the way, all these three things are thoroughly unbiblical. This is not what the Bible teaches at all. And so as I attempt to build up a biblical image of, of what the Bible teaches about heaven, to correct these three things, my hope is that you will discover that heaven is anything but boring, anything but childish, and thoroughly and totally physical, as we know it, and much more gloriously so. That's why it's important for you to take in all three messages, because I'm only going to begin today. You'll probably have more questions by the time I finish than answers today. So please make sure you come for the next two weeks, and if you really cannot, these sermons will get on the internet by 11 o'clock on Sunday, connect to our church's website and listen to them. All right. Today I want to focus on the third one, that, that we are not going to be disembodied souls in heaven, but we'll have resurrected bodies. And the starting point for understanding what the nature of heaven are going to be, and we in heaven are going to be like, is the resurrection of Jesus. Even those of you who may not consider yourself followers of Christ are aware that Christians believe two very significant things as part of their faith. That Jesus was crucified by Rome, by Roman authorities, and that on the third day, 
the event that they celebrate as Easter, that this Jesus rose from the dead. I want to speak to you for a few moments about the crucifixion. Because the cross represented for the disciples of Jesus a, a loss of hope. A plunge from amazing hope to hopelessness, much more so than that imaginative, imaginary scenario that I painted for you at the beginning. One of the four accounts of Jesus in the Bible, which we call the Gospels, is written by a medical doctor named Luke, who became a Christ follower himself. He was a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul, and he wrote this Gospel of Luke. And in the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, he tells a story of that first East Sunday morning when two of the disciples of Jesus were walking along and they were talking to one another. And this is the story. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, about the life of Jesus and his death. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus, who had now been raised from the dead, himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. And here's the, here's the cry. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. For three years, a motley crew of fishermen, tax collectors, thousands of ordinary people had been totally captivated as, they burst, as this man burst upon the scene. You want to get some infinitesimal idea of what that was like? Think of Sarah Palin and what she's doing to the Republicans south of the border. But that's infinitesimal. For three years, this man had burst in upon the scene, speaking like nobody had ever spoken, teaching like no one had ever taught, fearless like nobody had ever been before of the religious authorities, and uh, reinforcing his teaching by amazing miracles. And they believed that this was the Messiah that was going to come. And after 500 years of ruthless captivity, first from Babylon, then from Medo-Persia, then from Greece, and now in Rome, finally Israel was going to be set free and the Messiah was going to set up God's kingdom. I mean, talk about hope. And it reached a crescendo on Palm Sunday. And in five days it all came crumbling down when he was crucified. And crucifixion in Rome already had a symbolic meaning that many of us may not be aware of. N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, says this. The cross already had a symbolic meaning throughout the Roman world long before it had a new meaning to the Christians. This is what it meant. We Romans run this place and if you get in our way, we will obliterate you and we will do it pretty nastily too. Crucifixion meant that the kingdom hadn't come. Rome was still in charge, and for the disciples it meant they had backed the wrong horse for three years. Their hope had crumbled to ashes. Here's the point I want to make for you and me. If that was the state of affairs, and it had remained that way, if Jesus' crucifixion by Rome was indeed the last word in the story of Jesus, you and I wouldn't be here this morning. There would have been no Christian church. Hopelessly, they would have returned to their former jobs if they could get them, fishermen, tax collectors. Somehow eking out the best life they could under the misery of Rome's rule. It would never have launched the revolution that has brought you and me here. Something happened. Something happened to change their hopelessness to unbelievable hope all over again. And joy. And in that text that we read earlier on, it tells us why. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It was the resurrection of Jesus that changed hopelessness into hope. It was not a new religion. It was not the beautiful memory of three wonderful years. Boy, weren't those three years great and the telling and the retelling of, those, of, of His amazing teaching and His great miracles. That would never have made the revolution. No, it wasn't that. It was the fact that he who was dead was now alive and in their midst. It was not Rome's crucifixion, but Jesus' resurrection. That was the last word. And it is the heart of the Christian hope. One more point before we come to its significance for us. The resurrection of Jesus was not understood by the early disciples as just an arbitrary miracle that God did to kind of flex his muscles to show how strong he was and that he could do miracles. Jesus had already done miracles before. Nor was it to prove that life existed after death. That, if that was all the resurrection meant, it would have attracted some interest for a while, might have lasted even for a few years, people would have written a few stories, and that would have been the end of it like many other unexplained miracles that go on in this world. No, no, that wasn't what it was. The resurrection of Jesus carried such tremendous significance if you understood Israel's hope at that time. And C.S. Lewis in his book, The Miracles, captures it very well when he says, The resurrection of Jesus was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. Jesus forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. This is the beginning of the new creation. We began this service by a focus on the present creation. But the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of the new creation. Next week I'm going to be talking about the implications for earth. That heaven is linked to earth, not something separate like we think of. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened, making a difference now and guaranteeing the eventual hope of bodily resurrection for all who follow Jesus. The, their understanding of the resurrection was that was what they thought was going to happen in the end day for all of God's people had already happened to one of them in advance. And therefore it became a guarantee of the future resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the absolute ironclad guarantee that you and I are going to be bodily resurrected. There will be no soulless existence in heaven. Not only that, the scriptures tell us to what those bodies are going to be like. The Apostle Paul, who was one of Jesus, uh, the Christian faith's most ardent followers, although he was initially a persecutor, writes this to a small group of Christians who lived in Philippi, somewhere in modern day Greece. And he says, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under control, will transform our lowly, destroy our bodies, uh -uh, so that he can take away our souls to be with him. No, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And then John, one of Jesus' disciples, writing to another small group of Christians, says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we do know one thing. When He appears, we shall be like Him. So the resurrection of Jesus not only guarantees for us our physical resurrection, but it also gives us a clue as to what our bodies are going to be like. The starting point to understand what this dimension of the inheritance in heaven that awaits us bodily life is Jesus' bodily life. 
Have you ever wondered why the Bible tells us, and if, you're not a, if you don't know the Bible, if you read it, you will find that after Jesus' resurrection and before his ascension, when he left the disciples finally from a vis- visible realm, he appeared, continued to show himself to them and talk with them and discuss things with them for 40 days. Why did Jesus remain on earth for 40 days after his resurrection? At least one significant reason is so that we will get a glimpse of what resurrected bodies will be like on a new earth, which I will talk about next week. And if you look at it, you will find that there's a large degree of continuity. These transformed, glorious bodies of ours aren't going to be something completely new. There will be newness to them, but they will also in many ways be like our present bodies, only transformed gloriously. Why do I say that? When when Jesus, risen from the dead, joined himself to those two men who were walking on the road to Emmaus, they didn't. They they thought this was an ordinary guy. (laughs) They couldn't distinguish him from another human being. And if you put together all of the, resurrect, or the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection, you will see that he behaved very normally. First of all, he stood on a beach and he walked on a road. He didn't go like a hovercraft over it. You know. Although he did go through closed doors as well. And we'll talk about that next week. His voice when he called out to the disciples wasn't a deep, otherworldly God voice. You know, as some speakers put on when they start speaking. But was recognized as an ordinary human voice. There was no halo around his head. When he ate bread, it did not go down a transparent esophagus when he swallowed it. He ate bread like normal people eat bread and fish. He interacted with his disciples in a way that was similar to his interactions with them before his death. Eating with them, talking with them, questioning them. And at one point he said to the disciples, touch my hands and feet, it is I myself. Referring to what he was like before his resurrection. And so if this holds a clue to us, our glorious transformed bodies in heaven will have a strong degree of continuity with these present bodies, but they will also be glorious. And so, I want you to imagine with me a little bit. And the reason why there is this continuity and yet discontinuity is that we cannot imagine something that we have no clue at all about. But we can imagine something that we can see now, but which will be extended. And Alistair McGrath, who is a British theologian, talks about the role of imagination. He says, imagining heaven does not imply or entail that heaven is a fictional idea. Like imagining what Martians look like. That's not the kind of imagination. It is to affirm the critical role of the God-given human capacity to construct and enter into mental pictures of reality. Reality, notice, not imagination. Mental pictures of reality which are mediated through scripture. That's what we're doing today. We are able to inhabit the mental images we create and thus anticipate the delight of finally entering the greater reality to which they correspond. Every November for the last 20 years, Sham and I have been going to the same place for what is our uh, most anticipated vacation every year. I can have mental images of it right now and I can enjoy them right now. We have the ability to enter into that which our mental images can create. And anticipate the delight of finally entering the greater reality. And so I want you to imagine with me, knowing that our resurrected bodies will have both continuity and yet will be far more glorious than we can imagine. And I can only suggest two or three things. This is just to stimulate your thinking. Somebody in the evening service last night already added a fourth and a fifth to this. That's what it's supposed to be, okay? First of all, beauty. Our bodies will be beautiful in heaven. But I'm not talking about North American criterion for physical beauty. In fact, John says we don't know what we will be like. We will be like him and therefore we can be absolutely certain that our physical appearances will be beautiful to us, will be delightful to God and be pleasing to one another. 
Can you imagine beauty without either insecurity or arrogance? Lots of other beauty we know in this world today. You only have to look at the life stories of people in Hollywood. All kinds of beauty, but amazing and terrible amount of insecurity. That's why they jump from one relationship to another. Or you have beauty and tremendous arrogance that goes along with it. But beauty without arrogance or insecurity, that's something worth thinking about. And you will never try to be beautiful. You know why? Because you will be beautiful, you will know you are beautiful, you will believe it, and you will believe that about everybody else. You'll never have to put up a placard saying black is beautiful, or pink power, or brown is beautiful, or anything like that. Secondly, heightened physical senses. Touch, taste, smell, sight. Every one of these things that has been given to us by God to engage a material creation is going to be heightened beyond anything we could ever imagine because there's a redeemed material creation that is going to be part of heaven too. And that I want to talk about next week. And let me illustrate it in just one area, in the area of food. If you read the Bible, if you're not familiar with it, if you read it, you will be amazed at how many portions of the Bible have to do with eating and food. When Jesus rose from the dead in his, among these 40 days, one of the things he did was eat with his disciples. The first thing he did was make breakfast for them. And one of the dominant images in heaven of heaven is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there's no reason to believe that that's figurative because the risen Lord Jesus Christ didn't eat figurative breakfast. He ate literal breakfast with flesh and blood people. And you know what? Why did Jesus make food? Uh, these astronauts that go out for two months, they just eat freeze-dried stuff for two months. And they survive. If, if nutrients were all that were needed, we could just pump ourselves with nutrients on a regular basis and we could live. He made so many things that were good to look at, good for food and gave us abilities to taste it for the sheer pleasure of them. Heaven is not going to be a taking away of that. It's going to be an intensification beyond anything we could have ever have imagined and now apply that to every one of our, of our uh, senses that we have. And then imagine that it will be increasing forever and ever and never without limit. Are you beginning to understand something of what these glorious bodies will be like? And then there's a third one, because these two are just individual. There's a radiant community waiting for us in heaven. Even here, on, you know, Jesus' face, I said, didn't have a halo. But on one occasion, the disciples were allowed to see what Jesus was really like. And his whole face shone. And many centuries before that, it happened to Moses. He was praying to God, and when he came down, he didn't know it. His face was shining. And we have an anticipation of that, don't we? Even in our everyday language, all of us can think of individuals. And what do we say? Boy, when so-and-so enters the room, they what? Light up the whole room. You know people like that, right? I could immediately think of three or four or five people like that. Being married to one helps, of course. You know. Uh, But we all know that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living in a community where every single person in that community, including yourself, is a person who lights up the room as soon as they come in? And will become increasingly so for the rest of eternity. What kind of a community is that going to be? Black, brown, Mongolian, Indian, Caucasian, every tribe, nation, language, everything that is beautiful in every culture in this world will all be concentrated in every individual in heaven to make them radiant. Come on, is it worth imagining? I haven't done this kind of imagination before. I'm going to. 
I'm going to try and learn to discipline myself. That's how you get a hold of this imperishable inheritance that will bring us a living hope that will survive above the undulating hopes and hopelessness of this life. By the way, C.S. Lewis in his book, Great Divorce, talks about how this community might even have no age to it. He says, no one in that company, talk about an imagination, read the book, The Great Divorce, if you haven't read it. No one in that company struck me as being of any particular age. One gets glimpses even in our country of that which is ageless, deep thought in the face of infants, and the frolic of childhood in that of a very old man. So that's the radiant community that we have in heaven. So just three little clues. Now, one last question, and with that we're finished. Is everybody going to go to heaven? So if this is the glorious destiny for us, has Jesus' resurrection guaranteed that all of us are going to be there? Well, we've got to go back to that text for one important thing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. This living hope that comes from grasping this imperishable inheritance, and I've outlined to you one aspect of that, which is our resurrected bodies that are both continuous with and imaginably, unimaginably more glorious than our present bodies, we enter into that by this thing called the new birth. New birth is the key to entrance into the new hope or the living hope. So it's important for us to understand what that is. Jesus, the risen Jesus is not only the model for our heavenly bodies, it is the means by which we get in as well. And the Apostle Paul, writing to a group of Christians who met in the city of Rome, said this, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, who lives within you. In other words, our participation in the resurrection of Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit living within us. Because it's the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And if that spirit is living within us, then we are guaranteed participation in that resurrection. By the way, that's what new birth means. That's what this much maligned phrase, born again, really means. It is the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit within us. So, how does that happen? You don't get born again by believing some intellect, intellectually some doctrines about Jesus. All kinds of people do that. Nor do you get born again by allowing yourself to be whipped up by some charismatic speaker in some rally or gathering where you sign a card or make a commitment and then in a frenzy of the moment and then forget about it all afterwards. That's nothing to do with about being born again. It is an encounter with Jesus that results in the Spirit of God quickening new life within you. Where once you were dead, now you are alive. You see, in our natural conditions, the Bible says we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. Our natural orientation towards God is not one of dependence on God and loyalty to God. Our natural relationship with God is one of independence from God and loyalty to ourselves and to our causes. Whether or not that is couched in an external cloak of religion or an external cloak of hostile atheism or anywhere in between. The central essence of our deadness, of our sinfulness, is independence of God. Where we call the shots, we run our own lives. Remember how many times... Charlene spoke of being in control, being in control, being in control. That good woman, good marriage, good children, but sinful, dead, because I have charge over my life. I also want to say something to you. Although these three messages are all about heaven, by implication, every message is about hell too. Because you see, to die in that state of rebellion and independence from God is to go to another destiny. Not of a living hope, but of a living misery. And one of the best ways to understand the nature of hell 
is not the medieval torture chamber ideas that were popularized and which caused reactions. But as you get a clearer grasp of heaven and what this imperishable inheritance is, I want you to think by implication that hell is the exact opposite of that at every stage. And I hope that as your appetite for heaven grows, your horror of hell will increase throughout these three weeks as well. And so, to be born again, to have the Holy Spirit of God regenerate us, is to acknowledge this condition of deadness, is to acknowledge our state of rebellion against God, to acknowledge that we can do nothing, as Charlene said in her testimony, I got to the point where I could do nothing to save myself. And a few weeks ago, if you were here, when Dale Lars spoke about the fact that no one can ransom his or her own soul. But to acknowledge that Jesus Christ died, not just to get individual people to heaven, but to redeem a whole community of us of which we are a part. And then to acknowledge that he died for us. Then we get united with Christ in his death and the Apostle Paul writes in this chapter that if you are united with Jesus in his death, then you are united with him in his resurrection. The only way we can be guaranteed our physical resurrection and participate in this glorious destiny that waits for us is to be united with Christ now in his death through faith in him. So that's what this verse all means. Now you understand every phrase of it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our service began. In His great mercy, not because we deserved it, He has given us new birth through the Holy Spirit into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. Next week, as I said, I want to talk about the implications of Jesus' resurrection for this earth that we live in. And what these new glorious bodies will be doing on a new remade earth. But for this morning, if you're a Christian, if you already are a follower of Christ, united with him in his death and resurrection, exercise your imaginations. Get a hold of this living hope. And if you're not, if you're still on this journey, I understand that one simple explanation like I've given you this morning of new birth may not be enough. And so we have provided some special opportunities in our church for you to learn more. You don't need to do it now, but if you, in your bulletins, you'll find this yellow insert called uh, An Opportunity to Explore the Meaning of Life. It's, it's, it's a program we have called Alpha. It runs for 10 weeks. The very first one is on Tuesday evening, September the 23rd. You can sign up for a no-commitment banquet. At 6 o'clock in the evening, we will serve, serve you a nice hot meal. You will watch one video that lasts 40 minutes. It's called, the title is Christianity, Boring, Irrelevant, Untrue? Question mark. And after that, you'll have an opportunity in small groups around the table, groups of four and six with a table host, to discuss what you've heard. And if you like that, if you don't like it, you've had a good hot meal, you've had one engaging uh, interaction with what Christianity may be like, and you're free to go, no, no commitments. If on the other hand, you say, you know what, I like this setting, I like this format, I like, I like this way of exploring the Christian faith more, you can sign up for nine more weeks, nine more Tuesdays in a row, where you get to come at six o'clock, have a good meal, watch another video by the same man, and with the same group of people, week after week, forming new friends, you can discuss in a non-threatening setting your questions as you explore the Christian faith. We would very strongly encourage you to do that. And also, if you're a visitor with us, we have a special package for your visitors, welcome package, that also has included in it four sermons that I've preached on some of the tough questions that often thinking non-Christians have that might sometimes be a roadblock to the Christian faith. You can pick that up as well.
My blessing for you is very simple. I just want to bless you with a fertile imagination. <laughs> may, may the Holy Spirit of God sanctify your imagination and allow you to think from where you are to what that glorious resurrection entails for you. May you grasp increasingly that imperishable inheritance that is awaiting you. May your lives be marked by a living hope. And may, may the people in this world see a down payment of that radiance in our faces and be drawn to Jesus. Go in Jesus' name.